0: What are we here? 900 plus episodes. And just like you guys, I've learned a tremendous amount from my co-host, Cage. But one of the things that I've learned from just a buyer's standpoint is, and he's imparted this into you guys quite a bit as well. He said, "You know, we have eBay, we have Gold, we have PwC, sort of the new age of collecting. But he always talked to you guys about the amazing deals and opportunities when it came to legacy auction houses. Auction houses have been around for a very long time. And you know, it's funny. I looked at uh, Robert Edward auctions and it even still says baseball cards. And that talks to a little bit about the, the tradition, the legacy of, of this beautiful industry that we all love. And it's evolving in front of our eyes. But I got really, really lucky. Uh, we met a gentleman named Joe Drellich. He runs a show out of Philly and Chantilly, he's been doing it for quite some time. He's one of the kindest people I've met in the hobby. Um, and he's been running these shows for a long time. He said, Andrew, you know, I'm a listener of your show. Here are a few people you haven't had on as guests that I'd highly recommend. And towards the top of that list was Brian Dwyer. He's CEO of Robert Edward Auctions, and he's joining us today. One, obviously, I'm going to ask the origin story, but I also want to hear from his perspective kind of what the hobby has in store as uh, we're changing the tide, you know, from this Panini to Fanatics era and so on. So, Brian, without further ado, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for joining us on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm a long-time listener myself, so good, good to be in the chair with you guys.
0: And that art behind you, you want to give a, a quick shout-out? Because it's, it's gorgeous. It's the 1952 Mantle uh, painting.
1: Yeah, so it's done by an artist named John Post. So he's someone that I met probably five or six years ago now. And he did a series of original paintings based off classic vintage cards. So he did 52 Mantle, he did 52 Robinson, Gowdy Garrig, Belief Ruth. Um, and, and I fell in love with it. He, he gave them to us for auction. They went to private collectors and then I had the opportunity to buy them from, from those collectors. And I, I jumped at them. I mean, I, I look at them every day and I absolutely adore them.
2: So I'm going to jump in here. Andrew does all kinds of intros. He does all kinds of great stuff. And I want to, you know, implore the listeners, the, the thousands of people who listen and the millions at home around the world, you know, wrestling fans. Um, this is not just an episode. Right. I mean, you hear this is, you know, Brian Dwyer from, you know, from Robert Edward Auctions. We're not going to be talking about, you know, what's coming up for auction. We're not going to be doing that. This episode, if Brian allows us to kind of delve into his past, his history with the hobby, we'll have something for everyone. If you're an entrepreneur, Brian can tell you about his entrepreneurial spirit. If you like auction houses and you like, um, you know, the, the inner workings of it and everything from setting up an auction to going on CBS to promote your auction, he's going to have that for you. He's going to talk about behind the scenes at a grading company, and we can talk about his time working at SGC. Um, He can talk to you about the ebbs and flows of the hobby, which for someone like me, I can tell you, but yeah, Cage, that's an old man. He's telling you about what the hobby was like 20, 30, 40 years ago. But Brian will be able to tell you about what the hobby was like in the early 2000s, what it was like starting the eBay consignment business back then. So many people are doing it now during this wave. And, you know, waves come and they go. And Brian starts businesses. He started a couple of them. We'll get through all of them. Andrew will ultimately ask your origin story, and we'll go from there. But I promise you guys, if you give this one a chance, Brian's story, it's funny because it's unique to him because it has so many great little turns. But I hope you forgive me for saying this. It's not unique to the hobby. Because there are so many cool stories like this in the hobby that someone has turned a childhood passion into a career, but a career that has zigged and zagged, a career that has taken you to the different things that the hobby has to offer. So I'm really excited about this episode. And guys, please, Brian's a great guest. I can't wait to chat. About, and I, I'm curious to see which way Andrew takes us. So without further ado, go ahead, Andrew. Ask Was, it, was
0: there a story. question or was that? No, no, I, Cage I, that's does my this intro. Thing.
2: That's my intro as an intro. That my my intro to the episode is this guy. He if you want to talk to him about starting a business and then selling it and that business still running today under the owners he sold it to, he can talk to you about that. You want to talk to you about going to trade shows representing SGC at different shows? He can talk to you about that. Want to talk about an auction house? Talk to you about that. Talk about original eBay consignment businesses that so many people are building up now. About that. You want to start with the origin story and go I from do. There? I do. Did you have lemonade stands when you were
0: growing up? Yes or no? <laughs> I
1: never had a lemonade stand, no. But I, I raked a lot of leaves. I shoveled a lot of snow.
0: <laughs> My man. Where where are you originally from?
1: I'm from upstate New York, a town called Poughkeepsie. Nice. Okay, okay. I, I knew Poughkeepsie from the Friends episode. Yeah, right. Yeah, See, there's...
2: anything north of the Bronx, I consider upstate. Also, so I'm glad that Poughkeepsie is. Uh, a lot of people from Poughkeepsie be like, "You're from out in Long Island. You're further away from Manhattan and the city than I am. I'm not upstate. You're, you're to, you're in the ocean." Well, so now
1: I live and I work in New Jersey, and so I learned really quick that if I'm outside the five boroughs, I might as well be Canada. So, That's right. That's so right. you're uh, in Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm six hours from the Canadian border, but a lot of people consider me true upstate. So love it.
0: <laughs> So before I ask you the origin story, Cage called me last night and we, we had a fun little debate. What is easier to run, an auction house or a grading company?
1: I mean, they both present a tremendous amount of challenges. I think that uh, the grading companies, everybody's second guessing, you, right? So I would say that the grading companies have, and I've worked at a grading company like Cage alluded to. I think the grading companies probably have more detractors than the auction houses, um, but they, they both got a lot of challenges.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so grew up rake leaves, shoveled snow. When did you find cards? You know, for me, it was my grandma. You know, save up a little bit of money, would go to flea markets. I'd buy Terrell Davis and Brett Favre cards. Still doesn't make any sense. We got to sit down with Terrell Davis for a minute. What was your kind of? What was your origin story?
1: Yeah, six years old. For some reason, my parents decided that that was the perfect age to buy me my first set of Topps baseball cards. So here I am, 1992. I get this nice shiny blue box with 792 cards in it, and I locked myself in my room for two or three days sorting them by player, by team, looking at the stats. I mean, I just became enamored, and my parents, I think a light bulb went off in their head where I was like, all right, this is a go-to gift now for Christmas and and birthdays and special occasions, and so that was really my first exposure to the idea of a baseball card. Um, I didn't find vintage until I was about 11 or 12. And my grandmother, like your grandmother, loved a good garage sale and loved a good uh, turn a nickel into five dollars. Yeah. So she started buying me some cards from the 60s and 70s that she would come across. And that was really what, what got the wheel spinning about maybe vintage is cooler than modern for me.
0: What, what is vintage? Because I keep hearing this word vintage, but like vintage has to change, right? Like vintage for my generation and vintage for some of the kids that came into the hobby in 2012 – Fifteen, seventeen is Jordan 86 Fleer going to be vintage or is vintage more the scarcity and the supply that's available in the market?
1: So I think vintage, I think the hobby has always used um, time timelines as, as defining, right? So, I mean, for us, we consider vintage pre-1970. Um, I think a lot of people would disagree with that, right? 1970 Tops is now already 50 plus years old. And, and you could argue to your point that there are people in the hobby today that think the 90s is vintage. You know, we certainly get emails to that effect on a, on a weekly basis where they say, I've got old baseball cards. I've, I've had them for 35 years. Okay, doesn't, doesn't make them valuable, doesn't make them truly vintage. So, you know, from where we sit, we consider vintage pre-1970, but you're not wrong if you, if you talk about the 80s being vintage necessarily.
2: It's funny because that vintage term, you know, it came out, you know, with, I believe, with the, uh, you know, with the rise in grading companies, third-party grading, because they had to delineate, okay, it's a modern, now, now you have ultra-modern, modern. And it's funny because, you know, 1971 was sort of like that bright line demarcation. And I use like 2010, like in that range as to, you know, exactly when like people needed to have that bright line demarcation. And if you ask an antique dealer what they'll tell you, vintage, I mean, the the term vintage is of age, right? It's got the word age in it, Andrew. Um, So, but most antique dealers will tell you 40 years. If something is 40 years or more, it's of age, it's vintage. And it's funny because that 70, it hasn't changed. I would expect, and I could be wrong here, but I would expect at some point in time, um, maybe if I'm running a third-party grading company, that vintage, maybe in the next couple of years, moves from 71 to 81. Because maybe yeah. I think 81 is still vintage. But, you know.
1: <laughs> well, you know another, another interesting take. When I worked at SGC, we, we delineated vintage as pre-1972. Mm-hmm. And it was described to me as 1973 was the first year that cards were available for purchase as a set. And so that was the dawn of the modern hobby. So, I mean, everybody's got a different – yeah, That's good. I like it. <laughs> but that was in 2007 when I went to work for SGC and I got my crash course on the hobby. Um, that, was, that was one of the rationales that was, that was told to me.
0: Break that down. So 1973 was the beginning of the modern hobby because you could buy cards as a set. How were they sold before and what does that
1: mean? So prior to that, they were sold in series. And so the manufacturers, I mean, mostly tops at that time was issuing wax packs uh, by series in somewhat of a staggered fashion. So if you were looking to build a 1969 top set, you might only get the first 132 cards in April or May. You might get the second batch in May or June. You might get the third batch in June and July. And so you know, some of these sets have 1972 had seven series worth of cards that were dropped. So it was just a way to keep interest and activity going throughout this long baseball season. Um, And then come fall, they would just drop the entire football set in one fell swoop. So
0: same design, staggered release versus like now what Panini does, you know, national treasures, then prism, then. Oh,
2: no, no, no. So there wasn't, those are different sets. You've jumped right. from you've jumped from advanced. You've jumped from from beginner to advanced. Go intermediary. Think of what Tops does now. Tops does a flagship. That's Series One. They have a Series Two okay. release. You know, think of like twenty nineteen if you want to, because I know you were collecting stuff there. There's a twenty nineteen Tops regular flagship, and then there's the you know the Series Two had Tatis in it, right? You know, and then there's the the update. So the top set, if you bought a complete top set for the year, not don't get into like Chrome and you know uh, Chrome, Chronic, whatever the hell brands Tops has now. I don't even know. There's so many stupid things that they're releasing, but the top set does come in different releases, right? That previously was you know uh, Tops and a, like an update or a traded set was the only little additional thing they did. So you're right, Andrew. It's expanded, but it used to just be you got packs. And people were putting the set together and the chase was, and, you know, Brian, tell me if I'm wrong here. You know, you were keeping kids, all right, during the season. All right, well, I already completed that 100-card, you know, release or 150, 200-card release. Well, let's send out some new ones. Yeah. And the kids are building the set. In 73, you could buy in a box the whole set. You didn't have to collect it. It became like a Hess truck. Give it to <laughs> a kid for Christmas, the complete set,
1: you know? You'd see a 74 top set in the Sears catalog say
0: who was your favorite player growing up Cal Ripken Cal Ripken yeah people tell me he's not very liked he's very what is the deal with that (laughs) did you say skeeved is that what
1: did you just use not very well liked (laughs) I don't know I uh, I've met him I've had the pleasure of meeting him twice I've nothing but good things to say about my interactions with him but uh you know for me growing up I just admired his work ethic you know I mean here here I am uh, in the heart of Yankee country and and uh, I'm a Cal Ripken fan. It really – it made no sense. I can't even describe the origin story of my Cal Ripken affinity. But, um, but why
0: did he raise such a troublemaker? To put F, F face on that's Billy Ripkin? That's Billy Ripken. That's not brother. his son. That's not his son? That's
2: his brother. It Cal Ripken's rookie is 1982. Bill, the real Billy Ripken card is 1989. What did, did he have when he was four? Then. I mean, like, what are you saying? not son. I didn't, really a was son. <laughs> I didn't. But, you know. I, I'll tell you this: you're not that far off. Cal Ripken that we're talking about, Junior, is the son of Cal Ripken Senior. Maybe that's what you were thinking about. Who also it's is like, a, it's a like big the Kennedys family. of
0: baseball. The Kennedys. Right. All right, yeah, so let's fast forward to 2007. I was By graduating. Way, Andrew, you should
2: love Cal Ripken too, because you're an I Iron do. Man of podcasts, right? Mm-hmm. Every single day you show up and you do a podcast. That was Ripken. You had to respect the dude, right? You had to respect him. Showed up every day and played.
0: I did, but now we've gone to a few shows. I've met some handlers and you know I've I've heard something. So I was asking, oh, you know, I, I could I'm, I'm normally I'm wrong. So <laughs> so by the way, ignore all that. What he was told was Billy Ripkin is me. <laughs> he just has and his Ripkins all screwed up. <laughs> oh, so 2007, oh. I'm graduating high school. You went to work for SGC. You were why? Why go into the business of the hobby when you know you're probably enjoying flipping cars, you skipped taking, I, lot. I skipped, the big skipped a big part. Well, Brian, Brian could connect the dots.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I, I signed up for eBay in 1998. So I was 12, 12 Same years, Um And I signed up under the watchful eye of my dad, but uh, I was buying and selling on eBay from 1998 until 2007 when I was going to work for SGC. And I just loved the idea that here I am in Poughkeepsie, New York, and I'm buying cards from a guy in California or I'm selling cards to a guy in Texas. And, I, mean, I remember trying to complete my 1970 top story booklet set and i couldn't find it at the white Plains show but i found it on ebay and that was just an awesome concept to me and i fell in love with the idea that i could meet other collectors and, and the internet was in its you know not truly its infancy but the hobby message boards were starting and psa rolled out message boards in the late 90s and and so i got to meet a lot of people and buy and sell on eBay. I started selling for people on eBay. I started selling my best friend's dad's childhood collection on eBay. And uh, I just got exposed to all these different areas of the hobby at a very young age that I went to school, I went to college in New Jersey. In 2007, I needed extra credits and I got an independent study approved for an internship at SGC. So their offices were 15 minutes from my university and Rutgers. Seton Hall. Seton Hall. Nice. That's cool. Better better dead than red. So,
0: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know,
1: I had gotten introduced to the uh, CEO of SGC at the time. And I said, look, I, I need college credit. You don't have to pay me. I'd love to just get in. And I love cards. And I want to learn and, and be exposed. And so I did an unpaid internship at SGC. And that was really what my springboard to where I am today was. If you guys
0: don't know what I thought was kind of cool with SGC in like the early 2000s, they were doing encased. They did encased before encased was the thing. Yeah. W- was this around the time 2000, 2001 when you got the internship or was it a little bit later in the 2000s?
1: So my internship was in 2007, but there were still people there. I mean, there are still people there today that were working on those products. There was a product called UD Graded at the time where Upper Deck, to my understanding, would ship the cards to SGC. They'd be graded and then inserted into packs or, or boxes. So yeah, it was a very interesting revolutionary concept at that time. And
0: grading wasn't the way I understood it, right? I mean, Beckett was sort of like kind of the pioneer of modern grading and PSA has recently kind of come in and, and taken that and ran with it and SGC is doing amazing things now as well and we see new grading companies popping up but back then grading wasn't as prevalent as it is now. No, is not at well?
1: I mean, I, I used to do over 20 trade shows a year SGC, and a lot of my shtick was trying to sell people on the idea of grading. And, I'm, and I remember doing the Toronto Expo, and people would look at me like I had fifteen heads. Like, why? Why do I need somebody to tell me what the condition of my cards are? Why? Why do I need to pay extra money? I already bought the card. So it was just, just a fancy Zoom. Yeah, the,
2: was, the Metaverse is garbage. There's no need for it at a, all. It's just a fancy Zoom.
1: I totally I'm telling you,
2: dude. He Brian Brian's one hundred percent right. Nobody wants. I'm better at than you. Who are you? Who are these people? Who Who's going to be telling me what my card is? I know what an excellent mint is. I know what near mint is. I know what I, I put it right on my table. I didn't need to pay money and send it to somebody else.
0: Let's role play. How would you handle that objection?
1: So for us, I mean, I would tell people that it was the easiest way to pro- protect your items first and foremost. And then if you ever did want to sell, it was the easiest way to eliminate any ambiguity or, or uncertainty or or disagreement about the condition, right? Because here you have an industry accepted third party and it allowed me to sit in Poughkeepsie, New York and buy a card confidently from someone in California because I knew that we were speaking the same language. So I, I sold it as insurance and protection if you intended to keep your cards and I, it, I, I sold it as ease of transfer and, uh, you know, make a quicker, more confident sale, realize more money if you were in it for selling but if I send you a bunch and the guy next to me doesn't send as many, you're going to give me better grades, right? I mean, that was another thing that we had to ask uh, and answer all the time. You know, why? I know I was there yeah. listening to this. <laughs> how do you know? How do I know I'm going to get the same cards back? How do I know that I'm not going to get uh, worse grades than my buddy who sends a thousand cards? I mean, it was, uh, it was such a wild concept, that the conspiracy theories ran, ran wild.
2: And I can't touch my cardboard anymore. Why would I want to hermetically seal my collection? What's wrong with people? Why would they do this? I like touch the cardboard. It's a card. It's supposed to be held. Seriously, Andrew. Now it's like people don't want to, hit, they don't want to see it's their like, cards. Not only is it hermetically sealed, you don't even touch it. It's in a vault somewhere and you buy and sell it and no one even knows. It's crazy. It's a, it, the hobby has come a long way. I so it'll be, We'll look back 15 years and be like, I can't believe the way we were doing it 15 years ago.
0: So so now, when you see let's use tag grading, for example, right? They're, they're using computer vision and they give you like a re- report, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, I mean, I think that a company like Tag is facing the same uh, challenges that SGC was facing fifteen years ago, right? They're trying to revolutionize a hobby. They're trying to make significant changes to a hobby and and people don't know what to think of it. So you know, I think I, I always fall into the more information is better camp. Uh, I, I like, having an idea of why my card graded a certain way, because, you know, we know as collectors, not all nines are created equal, not all threes are created equal. You're going to have way more variation at the lower end of the scale than the higher end of the scale. And so knowing that, Hey, there's a hidden wrinkle or a crease or there's glue residue or, you know, all these things, I mean, I, I think is valuable. Um, So, you know, we'll see if, if they can crack the hobby, like we tried to do 15 years ago. Just don't crack the case exactly
0: so okay so let, let's fast forward to so 2007 intern at sgc i do mm-hmm. want to ask you sort of about you know kind of how you viewed or looked at this kind of previous run-up for 2020 to now and also what you think going forward but was there anything defining for you as a, a hobby businessman from 2007 to bef- right before the COVID and that boom that that happened
1: So 2008 was the defining year of my life, you could argue, because I graduated in uh, June, May of 2008 with a degree in finance at the height of this global recession. And so here I was six months earlier thinking I was going to go be an investment banker. And all the job offers, all my friends had their offers rescinded. Bear Stearns ceased to exist from my fall semester to my spring semester. Lehman Brothers was on its way out. Um, so I had to make this quick pivot as to, well, what am I going to do in a, in a terrible job market? Um, and what are my passions and where can I, where can I make some money? And so I was already in at SGC and I said, I love cards. Uh, you could use the extra help. Would you consider hiring me full time? And so I kind of viewed it as maybe just a way to ride out this uncertain economy, but I knew I loved it. I knew I was passionate about it. I knew I had been doing it on my own buying and selling for, you know, almost a decade at that point. And I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't resist this if it turned into something more. And, and here we are, you know, going on 16 years later, this is my full-time job.
0: Mind if I kind of probe here, because if, if we look back just to the last three, six months, I think a little bit of similar patterns are playing out more in anticipation than actually. So, I've just been watching auction supply numbers. And if you look at the last three months, people – I do feel there was a bit of a, a shock to people and a lot of liquidation happened, right? And I don't think that the unemployment, the business collapses have sort of been priced in or happened yet. But you are seeing you know Amazon cutting 10,000 jobs, Coinbase cutting jobs, all these companies cutting jobs. i The general thesis is that during a recession or when, during when times are bad, like 2008 – the hobby would suffer, but here's SGC was actually hiring you full-time. So you guys didn't feel the effects of the recession?
1: No. So it's interesting because, you know, people ask me even today, what, what do you think about your business going into economic uncertainty? And I, and I always tell people I'm not a mortician. So I hesitate to say that my business is recession proof. But if you think about it, when the economy is doing really well, there's this buying frenzy and people are flush with cash. When the economy is not doing well, people are flocking to liquidate. And so maybe that involves getting their cards graded. Maybe that involves bringing their cards to auction. So there's this, and then there's always a part of the population that's unaffected, good, bad, or indifferent in the economy. So there's this element to hobby businesses like auction houses and grading companies that's really got a steady flow uh, kind of regardless of what's going on, on a larger, on a larger level. Okay. the answer? I mean, it defies logic. logic.
2: No, not really. I mean, look, as long as you buy into the fact that liquidation of people's accounts, you know, or liquidation of people's, you know, collections, it, it's not a great thing for the hobby. We'd all rather it be the other side of the coin where everybody is making more money and everybody's buying more cards and you know every auction house is flush with auctions and cards because people are buying and prices are going up. But I guess what he's saying there is and it makes total sense. I'll give a comparison to another industry, but it makes total sense because you know, the other side of the equation is people get in, they run up. There are people who are going to lose money and you're almost the house, right? You're almost, but you're the house of a poker game, right? So mm. people playing poker, you're just taking a rake. There are going to be winners at the table. There's going to be losers at the table. At the time when the market's going up, there's more winners. At the time when the market's going down, people might be losing money, but auction houses, hobby businesses are usually still taking a rake to allow them that liquidity, which is fine. but Andrew. Uh, somebody told me this about workers' compensation once. That when the market's great, people are working and people are hiring and people are getting more jobs. That the workers' compensation industry is great, and all workers' comp lawyers and carriers they all do well because there's more people working, so there's more people getting hurt, so there's more work for them as workers' comp lawyers. When the market's bad and and people are getting laid off and people are you know people are it, there's not as much stuff being built and as many jobs. Well the underbelly comes out and people pretend to have injuries because they don't want to get fired. And these, the workers' comp industry booms again. It's the same kind of thing. Like it, it just depends on how you want to look at the, uh, you know, the coin. And I think Brian, you know, he's explained it pretty well. There are certain things it's not, it's not a funeral home, but you know, depending upon which side of the cycle, people who are involved in both sides will need an auction house to
1: sell their cards or to buy cards from. So I love so
0: Brian, it. when did you move from SGC to Robert Edward?
1: So there was a there was a stop in between. Here's
2: the one you're gonna like, Andrew, the entrepreneurial right.
1: story. Cage set it up perfectly. This is a journey that took a lot of twists and turns, but uh, thankfully all upward. Um, <laughs> I left SGC in 2010. And so I had been there for two and a half years, and I really missed the 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 buying and selling. You know, I mean that's where I cut my teeth, that's what I really uh, drew me into put you know jumping into the hobby with both feet. And when you work for a third party grading company, you know, you're 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 not able to buy and trade as freely as, as you would uh, if you weren't affiliated with them. So I left in 2010 and uh, I left shortly after the national that year. And I said, what what am I going to do? You know, what's my next step? How can I take this buying and selling? I love the hobby. I think I'm good at it. I think I've got a lot of good relationships. How can I parlay this into something? And so in 2010, I set out to start my own auction house because at that point in time, there was no in-between from the high-end auction houses of the world and DIY on eBay. So I set out to offer kind of an auction house experience for lower-to-middle value cards. And uh, in February of 2011, I ran my first auction, a company called Sterling Sports Auctions, which, as Cage said, still operates to this day after I sold it. Um, I still and, bid in. I still yeah, bid there. Great, <laughs> Lee Lee at Sterling does a tremendous job. I mean, I handpicked him from uh, a number of people that were interested in the company when I when I announced that it was for sale. But um, you know, I was putting out 1,000, 1, 2,000 card auctions, mostly graded cards, and we were we were serving a, a need that didn't exist. You know, the eBay consigners were not what they are today. The auction house landscape was not as crowded as it is today. And so I really consider Sterling to be the first company to offer that experience for guys that had fifty dollar cards or five hundred dollar cards. Because the other auction houses that were operating at that time, they didn't want to talk to you unless you had thousand dollar cards or five thousand dollar cards or fifty thousand dollar cards. So I did that for about a year and a couple months until I caught the attention of the Robert at Robert Edward auctions. And he said, hey, you know, you've got a good thing going. People like you. stealing
0: it. my market share, he said.
1: Well, you know, to be honest with you, we, we played in completely different sandboxes. But what he appreciated for me was my connections. I was able to fill out these auctions month in and month out based on people that I knew and, and reputation and, and relationships that I had cultivated and uh and i fit his i fit his mantra you know service honesty integrity transparency i was operating in very similar fashion to how he was operating his much larger auction company and so i sold sterling in uh 2012 and i went to work for robert edwards and uh it was june of that year and we were doing one auction a year as a company at rea and uh, one of the conditions of my employment was branching out to two auctions, which seems foreign now that we're doing eleven auctions a year. But um, yeah, so that that was how I ended up at REA. It was June of 2012.
0: So he convinced you, entrepreneur Sterling's crushing it to come join our one auction a year, Robert. This guy's a good salesperson.
1: Well, so I, you know, again, it's hard to maybe look back with uh, you know your 2012 glasses on, but I tell people it was like I was playing minor league baseball and I was doing fine and I was a solid hitter and, you know, I'm, I'm playing, I'm starting day in and day out. But then the Yankees called me and they say, Hey, we're playing the Red Sox and we need a center fielder. Okay. And so that was reputationally and position in the industry and the type of material that they were handling for a card fanatic, like me going to a company that was selling, Honus Wagner every auction and a Baltimore News Ruth every auction and Mickey Mantle jerseys. I mean, I just couldn't, I just couldn't turn it down. So yes, I was doing well, but I saw the writing on the wall as to the potential at REA. And once he told me that he was open to expanding, I said, I'm game and I want to be that guy.
0: Big fish, small pond, medium fish and an ever growing pond. Let's go. I'm going to be the Mickey Mantle of the hobby basically center fielder for the Yankees. You, I'm not going to ask you if you have a Mickey Mantle bleacher story. That's for another day. Uh, <laughs> it's a family. By the, did you, you've never seen that? <laughs> so he knows. He said it's a family show. He knows exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's, it's a family on. show except for on Tuesday. And, and this gives a lot of hope because what I've seen recently is – Accounts on Instagram pop up and saying, Hey, you know, you don't have to necessarily go to any of these huge auction houses. If you want the care and the service of your, you know, $1,000 to $10,000 cards or $1,000 to $20,000 cards consigned, I'm opening up a consignment business on eBay. I'm going to give it all the time care. And I think it gives hope. I'm thinking Jocko Sports, San Diego Sports is another one. As they're starting up, it gives you hope to see, oh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There are steps to take. So, Okay, so you went to Robert Edward. Did you, I mean, I obviously enjoyed but Before we leave
2: this time period, this 07 to 2012, right? Brian can give a unique, I don't want you to go into details, Brian, but he can give a unique perspective to some people who have gotten in the hobby in the last couple of years and have seen a, a boom and bust, seen the rise of the hanky-panky content and has now seen lawsuit 2023. Lawsuits all over the place. Uh, in 09, the FBI was at the national. I mean there were indictments, what right? Were they so <laughs> they were buying they were buying a, a flight from Mr. Mastro. Uh so I mean there there was there was hanky panky and there was craziness in the hobby too. Brian, did the hobby get through it? The hobby got through it and the
1: hobby's thriving. And I mean, and and if you talk to people that were in the hobby in the seventies, they'll tell you of standing at trade shows in Detroit where the the guy who consigned his card to the card show auction had his had his son bidding on it from the back of the room. I mean, as long as there's money involved, you go back to, you know, BC, I'm sure there's been, there's been elements of fraud. Um, but the important thing is, is that those bad actors get weeded out. The hobby understands that people are looking at it and, and maybe it's not regulated in the sense like, uh, you know, the SEC regulates stocks, but there are eyes on the industry. And, and he well, means
2: BC, like, like BC, in, like a long time ago, BC and the hobby is before card ladder. I was going to say before.
1: So, uh, yeah, but I mean, look, I mean, the hobby, the hobby got through it. And if you talk about 2012, REA was doing one auction a year. That auction would consistently do between nine and ten million dollars. It was the biggest event in the industry. And now you've got, you know, Wagner's selling for six, seven million dollars. You've got 52 Mantle selling for 12 million dollars. You could have bought the entire REA auction in 2012, ended up with a Ruth rookie and a six, a Wagner and a three, a Baltimore News Ruth and a one. I mean, it's really the escalation in prices, inflation in material. It's, it's been kind of awesome to watch. It feels
0: like you guys just, like every year it's a Super Bowl game for you guys. Like I would probably get the, like just insane butterflies, like the 24 hours before an auction ended because it's like we've been working our whole year for this
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then it's like we don't know what's going to happen right it,
1: it's, it's incredible but anyway people like it you hope people show up
0: i'm going to we're going to come back to the ruth baltimore news cuz pwcc did this amazing thing it was like the top 75 most iconic and now it's fun cuz i mean you get to actually see what iconic cards are i'm going to ask you your five most iconic cards okay and your five well, okay. top
2: NBA players and whether Kobe's in it. I'm just kidding. Don't answer that. It's been
0: it's been a week. Is Kobe in your top five? Yes or no? <laughs> True or false? I think I
1: think he's in the top five.
0: Okay. Oh, people are gonna love Smart. you. And <laughs> it's it's fascinating the engagement that got. But okay, so let's fast forward. You know, 2020, how do you process this COVID run-up? How do you process what happened in the last two years in terms of prices going ballistic and now coming back to, to Earth? And we're not sure where Earth is.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, in 2020, I remember distinctly having an all hands on deck uh, conference call because the the office was shut down and it was going to be two weeks. And so I have a conference call for my staff and we say, okay, here's here's what we're going to do. And we were that was about March 13th. We were scheduled to start an auction three weeks later and we were going to be the first auction out of the gate post covid. And so I had the decision to make, I mean, I was getting bombarded with phone calls and emails from consigners, pull my items, cancel the auction, move the auction. And, um, we made the very, very tough decision to proceed with the auction as planned. And that auction was an absolute blockbuster. I mean, prices, that was the auction in which, um, a, a Jordan PSA 10 set a record at like $60,000, which was you know, unheard of at the time. And, uh, Last dance Play that
0: back, Luca Nation. You heard that right. That wasn't a, a, a misquote. Sixty thousand dollars right after COVID. First,
1: auction. and it
2: was a record. And it was like, wow, that's over
1: what? You know, yeah. yeah. The guy, the guy had bought it from us previously for twenty, twenty-one thousand, twenty-two thousand dollars. So you know that uh, that auction, that April of twenty twenty, gave us extreme confidence that okay, the hobby is resilient, and we're gonna we're gonna make we're gonna make it through this. And then the hobby just was on a rocket ship. And so we just for context had eight employees in March of 2020, and now we have 23 employees. Uh, we were doing three auctions a year. Now we're doing 10, 11 auctions a year. We were processing, you know, 8,000 items a year. Now we're processing 50,000 items a year. So it's it's been it's been awesome to to watch and to be a part of. And you talk about prices being up and down and coming back to earth, you know. Uh, a unique thing about us in the last two or three years, I think, is that we were vintage, just to go back to that term, pre-1970. That's our, that's our niche and that's our specialty. And that's been an area of the hobby that absolutely rode the the rocket ship up, but has been much slower, if at all, to take the elevator down. And so that's been exciting for us. That gives us a lot of hope for the hobby moving forward and our role in it, because you know, Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth's always going to be Babe Ruth. They're not making more of them. There's no manufactured scarcity. So it's um, it's, it's been a wild couple of years.
0: What's the deal with um, the appeal for this Baltimore news, Ruth?
1: Why do people like that card? There's only about 10 of them known to exist. Um, it is Babe Ruth as a minor leaguer in 1914 And so you will have people that argue both sides of the coin. You will have people that say it's Babe Ruth, any, the earliest card, whatever it is, is going to be desirable. And then you have other people that say, I'm writing it off because it's a minor league card. But I think it's a card that has a lot of mystique about it. Um, You know, of the 10 that are known, that population was diminished when a card was accidentally thrown out. That population was diminished when one went into a museum. And, and we haven't seen one come up for auction in many years, you know, they used to sell pretty frequently and then they've dried up. So I think it's a, it's got a lot of lore and mystique about it. And, uh, and when it's Babe Ruth, it's, it's worth discussing. I I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: mean, it's funny. My favorite Ruth comes from 20 years after the fact. It's it's not for
1: everybody. You know, I mean, I think it's super cool. I think it's, I think it's fascinating that in 1914, this guy uh, who was going to go down as maybe the greatest baseball player of all time had a card made and a schedule on it and they made different variations of it. I mean, there's three different varieties of that Baltimore News Ruth card. So, you know, we talk about the chase of modern cards. It's like, here we are in 1914, they're issuing a blue, a red, a schedule variation. I mean, I just think it's got a lot of cool interesting things going for it.
0: So, Something, and Cage, I apologize. I'm sort of monopolizing, but I, I'm interested. No, I do course. see a little kindred spirit in and, and Brian. And, I mean, I graduated college in 2013. So, I mean, four years, I think four or five years older. What, if if someone came to you, you know, during this run-up, Pele rookies have been pretty popular, but there's the question of which is this true rookie. And I, I'm curious to hear your take And if you do I, do soccer. But what if someone came to you and said, what is one overrated set or player? For vintage and what is one underrated set or player in the vintage
1: space you know that whew, that's a tough one um i think jackie robinson um was worthy of all the attention that he's now getting i mean he was so underrated in the card world for such a long time so i'm, I'm happy to see that the market and the the hobby is caught up on that um you know wow that is really uh that is really cage, crazy. I'm
0: coming to you next, so don't think I'm going to let you out of the cage match that easy.
1: Jackie almost
2: would... has swung to overrated or overpriced. I mean, the, the change in Jackie's prices from where he was to where he is now, it's 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 an amazing swing how much the stuff has gone up, especially because it's, it's scarcity. I mean, like I now see a 48-leaf Jackie at almost every show, a couple yeah. of them at shows. It's weird. You know,
1: Kofax. Kofax is a guy that comes to mind as maybe a little underrated. So he had a short career uh, in the big scheme of things, but just dominant. Um, you know, his rookie obviously gets, it's just, just due, but I think that he's got some, some cards from the late fifties and sixties that are still not terribly expensive in the big scheme of things. Um, so Koufax is a guy that I would maybe consider to be a little under underrated, undervalued, um, over. I'll have to, I'll have to come back on that. I, I, am I'm, I'm blanking right
2: now. Cage. Well, I mean, it's an auction house. He's not supposed to say anything. is overvalued. He's <laughs> supposed to say anything is overhyped. I mean, come on. He's supposed to be a hype man. This is what's supposed to happen. C- Cage. So, so I mean, you 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 tee me up for haters, but I've been saying it all along. Um, and and it's funny because my answer will be guided by sort of what Brian talked about not just as an auction house, but also just in talking about Jackie Robinson, right? We've seen waves. We've seen rises in price. We've seen things kind of change. We've seen things happen. If he's frozen, that's a great freeze. That's a very photo. Uh, isn't it? Right there. That's a <laughs> I great- think like, Someone should take a screenshot of that. It's fantastic. <laughs> I wish I could smile like that, right? <laughs> so look how to look how make people happy. It's great, right? So hey, he's back. Um, so, Sorry about I mean, that. We're easy. having, we're having no. a storm out here. Yeah, Terrain so- raining. Sorry
0: about You should have seen th- your- that, that should be your headshot. You froze with the greatest smile ever.
2: I'm I'm, I'm envious of the smile that you had on, man. By the way, Um, whoever you
0: have, PJ, shout out to PJ. He is thorough uh, on your team. I just wanted to give him a shout out. (laughs) He's
1: he's an old college friend of mine, believe it or not. I met PJ at Seton Hall, and we we took different paths uh, in 2008, but he's probably one of the most diehard sports fans I know. And uh, we reconnected uh, last summer, and, and now he's working for me. And it's, uh, it's been really good to have him back.
2: When I was in high school, the pride of Seton Hall was a guy named Luther Wright. Came out in the 1992 draft. He had a decent tournament and made a first-round pick. And I don't think he played more than like seven minutes in the NBA. He was a big dude. <laughs> big dude. Luther Wright. Anyway, so, um, he, he, so overrated. I'll say this a million times and Brian can't say anything anything's so overrated, but I'll say it a million times. The thing I would be more careful with, and it's great that he talked about like Jackie's run up, are things that don't have any type of real history, but have had that significant run up. And if you, if you play back a little bit of this episode, there's some great tidbits from Brian all over this. But they play in a very unique space for the auction house. and and i'm I'm a big fan of REA because when you know what your bailiwick is, when you know what your your cornerstone is, and you don't deviate too far from it and you be, you become the best at just this thing, I think there's real value there, right? And you guys are vintage. You do vintage cards. do say vintage baseball cards. you have vintage cards, right? You're not putting out, you know, the shiniest of shiny cards. You're more of an auction house for me. And then don't have a lot of the shinies. Maybe that changes one day. Maybe you add another segment. Maybe, you, you know, you try one auction here and there. But I use that in how I determine whether something is overpriced, overvalued, overhyped. The reason why, as Brian said, Vintage took that elevator or that escalator ride up, but hasn't taken that free fall drop back down, Vintage Baseball specifically, is because it has a history. There is a, a, a sales record. There are, you know, people who have collected it for decades. That you know what the run. So, you know, it probably didn't have the same 20x. It had a nice rise, but it didn't go like this. And it's also not going to do one of these things. So, when answering the question about what's overrated, I would stay clear of myself. And I may miss some outsized gains, the next huge run up because of this. But I'm okay with that. I stay away from what I like to call the fringe sports. That don't have a collector base for a long period of time. That just saw their first comeuppance in this recent boom cycle that we have. And yeah, that includes Pele. I,
1: I told you, I paid a
2: grand that. for my Pele Alifa Balogé. one thousand dollars. PSA two is selling for twenty five grand now. That's insane.
0: Brian, when you have your conversations with people, what? How are they thinking about soccer? And specifically soccer collecting and Pele, Garincha, Maradona, Cruyff, the area that you play in. And, and to just be truthful and honest because, you know, a lot of people, we, we have an amazing content team now that takes our, our episodes and cuts into clips. And now they're saying, hey, Cage, stop being a clickbaiter. Stop giving us hot takes. And I said, you guys are so dumb. We've been doing this for 900 episodes. Just because you see it on Instagram, now it's hot take. We've been saying this. These are so, hot takes. I believe everything I say. It's a show. But I'm curious, Brian, and I, I know you're dealing with the storm, so I appreciate you kind of you joining and, and doing what we can. The first 45, there was no glitch, so our, our audience is not going to have any issue. All good. Thoughts on soccer?
1: So, you know, soccer, we had two two or three Pele jerseys in our last auction, and they were signed by Pele, and they they garnered incredible interest. And so I understand something like that because here's – shirts that the guy wore on his back and i think game used memorabilia is an area that uh, of the hobby that could really take off um one of the things that people say to me frequently is oh soccer has got to be got to be a huge potential market because there's billions of people around the world that play it and watch it um i i get that but like cage was just saying there's not that established history there and so i've been especially over the last three years um cautioning people about irrational exuberance. So don't get caught up in things that don't make sense or don't have uh, established values. That's why I love the arena that we play in. That's why we've built our business on Ruths and Aaron's and Cobbs and Wagners and, and, and guys like that, because they're, they're established and, and we can feel very good about selling what we're selling. You know, Pele, Mount Rushmore, potentially of all athletes, I, I think that he's a guy that deserves... Um, to be collected and collected at a high level. But to Cage's point, I think his card prices have just gone off in, in a manner that it's, it's tough to make sense of. Um, so I preach caution, like Cage was just saying. I preach buying what you like and, and uh, being okay if it all goes to zero. But, um, you know, I, we have not delved into soccer deeply for probably a lot of the same reasons you guys have talked about. Prime may like you. this. <laughs> underrated.
2: One, type one photos. They got they got they got some, they sell some nice ones. They sell some yep. type ones. Um, I've been on, he's got some Jordans. Um, but Satchel Paige will be my underrated. For a lot oh, of no, reasons. That's your the historical reasons, but also because he only really got to play at the, I don't want to call it tail end, but the real tail end. Some say he was pitching at like 50 years old at the end there. So, there's not a lot of cards for him. I mean, you got the 48 leaf, which is a short print to death. Yep. I love his 53 tops, which is kind of like an art card for him. You know, it's a drawing card. You've seen the 53 tops mantle, obviously, Andrew, which is a really, you know, nice card. Um, there's just not a lot of Satchel Page cards to choose from. And I think, you know, his historical significance and the fact that people say how great he was, um, that's just one guy. You know, wasn't like, he
0: like 50 years old when yeah, he was Yeah, he was pitching to
2: a ripe old age.
0: Brian, I, I want to ask you this because you, you've your auction and grading with the paylay cards, they're all hand cut. And and I don't understand how you grade hand cut. Like um I've seen all of the uh, I see a way more deviation or way more subjectivity in, in hand cut cards. Could you talk through that?
1: Yeah, and I, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, for a lot of these issues that don't have clear guidelines, um, you know, some of these hand cut cards that they, they have at least borders that you're that you can see and you can, you know, bazooka cards, you can see the dotted line where it's supposed to be and as long as it's intact and showing, you can grade it accordingly. But for some of these that were just cut off the side of boxes or cut from panels or cut from magazines, it does get tougher and, and there is a subjectivity to it. So, um I don't always agree myself with the way that some of these handcuffs cut Totally to subjective. It. Yeah, you know. I mean uh, and Brian, was- you
2: guys sell a 1969 Transagram call you Stremski? Right. I mean, you guys sell those all the time, a complete box version instead of cutting it on the lines. I mean, it's been, they've been, they've been doing these hand cut yep. cards of baseball
1: bazookas and, uh, and, and post cereals. And I mean, a lot of these are, are hand cut cards. So, you know, I, I tend to have an easier time explaining the ones that have the guidelines and the, and the dotted lines and the borders on them, but the ones that don't, it's, it's often greater interpretation.
0: So, Your five iconic cards. And these could be in your opinion, or these could be like the ones that you would want as eventually to own, or you might own all five probably. Uh, What are your five most iconic cards?
1: I have to lead off with the T206 Honus Wagner. I mean, that is a card that I just remember from my earliest days in the hobby as being, you know, we talk about lore and mystique. I mean, that's got it going. How
0: did the dog bite off the, the corner of that card? The mystique.
1: The, on the,
0: the Honus Wagner, the one that's like half bitten off, that one. So
2: he's talking about one of the more recent ones that sold yeah. that was only like half the card. Yeah, yeah I got Not you. Not every card looks like that,
1: though. Yeah, right? there's about 60 of them known. So yeah, there's, uh, you know, we sold one last uh, 2021, 6.6 6 million. That was the record setting price for a trading card until just just recently. Um, but that's a card that every time I see one, every time I handle one, I, I, I love. Um, 52 Mantle, that was the first major vintage card that I bought when I had a couple bucks to spend on cards because I know it's not as rookie. I know people frequently call it as rookie, but that's iconic. That's really the birth of Tops and Tops we know today still. Um, I think Babe Ruth, I don't know what Cage's favorite is, but he said it was 20 years after. I think 33 Gowdy Ruth is up there. Um, Which color? Which color? Look, I'm a big fan of the yellow background yellow. one. Um you know, I mean, they're all good. Wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't kick any of them out of my collection, but I I love the yellow.
2: Green Um, is your least favorite.
1: Yeah. 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 There's a hierarchy,
2: Um, man. And the other two kind of, yeah, it's interchangeable. Yeah. You can take 41, 49, 181 always gets, always is the one that people don't like,
1: you know, 86 clear Jordan's in the conversation as well. It's hard to deny that card's place in the hobby Uh, If you remove the pricing component from it right now and how it's gone from $20,000 to $800,000 to $200,000. If you just think about where it is in the hobby, where it represents uh, basketball cards and where they've gone and Jordan being the greatest, you know, I think that's in the conversation. And then, um, you know, the fifth, the fifth and final one, you could go in a lot of different directions, but I think that, uh, um, uh, Man, I want to want to make sure I get this right. I think the Jim Brown rookie card is probably my favorite my favorite football card. I think that that's just a very clean card. I think it epitomizes football. Uh, you know, he's he's right there in the center in this running position. So, um, again, I think you, I think you need a list of a hundred to hit them all.
0: T206 Wagner, 1952 Tops Mantle, 33 Gowdy, 86 Fleer, and then Jim Brown, 58. Yep. yep. 50. Pretty All good, right? right? Yeah.
2: So I've one way, more Brian, question. We've spent time where he talks about how Mickey Mantle and uh, Marilyn Monroe uh, were married. Because Mickey Mantle and, and Joe are the same person to him. Yeah, sure,
0: I'm so I'm model. glad you got the 58th round. Uh, you're all grown up. I'm, I'm so excited. You got a story to tell. You got a provenance. <laughs> provenance. So provenance. I have one more question about Cage. A- any final thoughts? Any you know? Any final takes from you? I, mean, I was going to ask uh, about
2: uh, the jugslide arrow,
0: but it doesn't affect you, Brian, because you guys have been to. So
2: it's Cage Wax, Cage, cage Max time. I won't. I'll go easy on Brian, but it's a question that you know if I were listening at I'm home, probably want after more hearing Cage Wax. Story, Cage wax would be good too. We should do that. The cage match. So I try to ask like a difficult question. I'm sure this won't be difficult for you, but you've seen ups and you've seen downs. And when you talked about tag grading as, you know, for an example, it's like, oh, well, you know, they're trying to revolutionize an industry. You know, they're trying to come in and kind of like change it and the whole deal. And, you know, when I worked at SGC, there weren't that many grading companies. And, you know, when I worked at, when I started my own company with Sterling, you know, there was nobody doing this. I think it's safe to say, fair of me to say this, there are no shortage of auction houses, okay? So if I am a consumer, if I'm someone listening to this episode, I would ask, and I'd love your answer, why go to REA? Yeah,
1: no, it's a fair it's a fair question. I mean, certainly Sterling in 2010 was this revolutionary idea, and it was like the fifth auction house on the scene, right? And now we've got dozens. The barriers to entry have really been broken down and anybody and – Anybody can do it, so to speak. Um, the thing that's always set REA apart is is reputation, results, and level of service. And so if you're coming to us as a buyer, you're gonna get great, authentic, verified material, high quality, what you see is what you get. You're gonna have a wide selection. Um, certainly we've broadened our, our offerings over the last three to five years. And if you're a seller, uh, you can really count on REA to have the knowledge to present your items in the very best light. I cannot tell you how many times we've created value out of thin air from people by finding things they didn't know they had or knowing how to grade a card or knowing who to grade a card with because that's always something that comes into the equation. Um, but you know, we're, we're a company of collectors. You heard my story, right? I love these cards. My employees love these cards. We're going to handle every step of the process, whether you're a buyer or seller, with the very best level of service and knowledge. And all of that combines to turn in incredible results. So that's the REA difference, in my opinion. Love it.
2: I mean, listen, the I bid with you guys. I love that people, you know, you know, here's my lane, and I'm not saying, oh, you're only going to get 1970 and before. I mean, yeah. one of the things I love about bidding with REA, and I share this with our audience, right? I'd love to hoard yep. it all, on like, the, but, but honestly, if you want, I mean, by the time you're hearing this, the last auction for REA has already has already happened. But you know, it's got a, a nice, you know, the Kobe finest gold, Andrew. You know, the good, the the rookie one with the, the gold, and, right? Yeah, the one where he's like doing like the little like. Pick up one of those. They, you know, the, those those are in the auction. It's not vintage baseball, but you got a, a really nice Peyton Manning. You know, the SPX rookie selling there. So, I mean, you. I like to like look where people aren't looking, you know. I don't want to bid against five thousand people, so sometimes, you know, rea, you know, uh, I'm lurking. I'm lurking in the weeds. I don't always get the bargains I think I'm going to get because I think you got a,
1: a lot of eyeballs on it anyway. Well, I was just but, saying we got you know. a lot of people that might maybe employ that same logic. Yeah, and, yeah. Got a bidding war going on. So exactly, you know, we we reach a lot of people and, and we've got a wide wide variety. So yes, we've cut our teeth on the pre 1970. But we've got a little bit of everything. I mean, you'll find Pokemon cards. You'll find non-sports cards. You'll find an Abraham Lincoln autograph in the right auction. I mean, we're we're all about just selling quality stuff that's going to that's gonna fit in. And we're building a spring auction right now that goes off in April that's going to have just incredible stuff. Some of it's never come to market in 20 years. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. And then we've got a February Encore auction coming up. So when this does air, we'll be about two weeks away from another monthly auction with 3,000 items in it. So there's always something around the corner.
0: I got you got time for one more tough question and one more easy question?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Okay, tough or easy first?
1: Your pick. All
0: right, uh, tough, tough always. Cool. I come to you. I own a Baltimore News, uh, you know, Babe Ruth. I say, hey, I just saw the valuation on collectibles, $8 million and change, you know, why should I go auction with you versus, you know, bringing it to rally, bringing it to collectible. And what are your thoughts in general on fractional?
1: So I think fractionalization is a very interesting concept, actually. I mean, I've been following rally for a number of years. Obviously they got their start in things like cars um, and, and, you know, other collectibles outside of sports. Um, I think it's great. I think it allows people to get in on items that they wouldn't otherwise afford. And I think as this price escalation has, has occurred and maybe continues, we'll see fractionalization really um, get some steam behind it in, in our world, potentially. You know, one of the important things, at least as it pertains to the Baltimore News, Ruth, is that that was a very small fraction of the, of the overall card. And so, you know, I don't know if there's the appetite for the volume of people that it would take to sell out a full offering on that, but I know I've got a list We've sold more Baltimore news routes than anybody. So whenever you search for one online, if you want to buy one, if you want to learn about one, REA comes up first. So I've got a list of people that want to buy that. And I know they can write the check and I know that they can they can afford it and I know that they want it. So, you know, on a card like that, I think uh, knowing knowing the buyer and knowing somebody who's gonna pay up and, and getting that certainty, um, as opposed to going out and trying to sell. 8 million shares at a dollar or, or 800,000 shares at $10. Um, you know, I think that's very appealing to people.
0: Okay. Here's the easy one. You New Yorkers, you guys, your, your fandom is very interesting to me. Are you a Buffalo Bills fan?
1: I'm not. So uh, sure, yeah, makes sense. I'm I'm from New York is so large that I'm from yeah. the part that uh, about 90 minutes from giant stadium and about six hours from, from the Bills. So I had no exposure to them growing up. Giants, Jets were always on in the house. Um, only really recently when Bills Mafia has been taking over the world have I even heard about the Bills. So Giants fan? I grew up in a Giants household. Frankly, football is probably I, – I, I mean, I watch the game. Are, are you a
0: baseball guy? Are you just a baseball guy through and through?
1: I don't even watch modern baseball until it gets to the World Series, believe it or not. So I am so enamored with the old stuff. I keep up with the new stuff because you know it's it's part of my job, and I've got people here that are very passionate about it. But uh, you know, baseball games are long. So I got I got two little kids. It's tough to it's tough to carve out four hours to watch a game. But I love good competition, whatever the sport is. Grew up in a grew up in a Mets household. Grew up in a Giants household. Um, but now today, I kind of just. Kind of just like good, good competition. On another podcast, I'll tell you about my life working for Fox Sports in the NFL. That was uh, that was another zig that my life turned. I'm surprised
0: your
2: parents didn't name you Dwight. You're born in '86 in New York. You know, Daryl, Dwight could have been Hojo. Could have been out. You know, my dad,
1: my dad, uh, my dad was a Boston fan in the Bronx. So, oh, wow, my, my dad was rooting for. Uh, we had his allegiances torn in the '86 World Series. I mean, a Boston fan, woo! In New York, in the Bronx,
2: forget about Bronx. it. Yeah, that's well. Don't worry crazy. about it.
0: In the Yankee state they didn't even show up to the last game because it was cold. So, Luca Nation, hope you enjoyed this episode, Brian. Nice little cliffhanger there with Fox Sports. Now I'm curious. Enjoy this episode. We'll be back tomorrow. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, guys.